Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons. This episode finds Adam leading us through a discussion of the fundamentals of traffic engineering. And along the way, we discuss self-driving cars, excessive clover leaves, and modern uses for dial-up modems. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 90, Traffic Engineering, September 3rd, 2015. So, Brian, are you looking forward to self-driving cars, or are you happy just to do the driving yourself? I'm certainly looking forward to the uh, ride home from the bar. <laughs> I thought that was called a taxi. Well, it's better if you don't have to if you don't have to call it, and if the taxi isn't some strange car, but is you know has your playlist all set and knows exactly where to take you. I, I thought that's what Uber was trying to do. Uh, I don't know if they have your playlist down, but, uh, also it'll be interesting to see how the Uber or the, uh, sorry, not Uber, the self-driving cars handle, you know, iced over Minnesota roads in the winter. <laughs> right. That'll, that'll be a lot of fun. Right. And, and our, so we, we've got several, uh, companies sort of competing for the self-driving cars. We've got Google who's actively doing it. Uh, there are rumors that Tesla's somehow involved. There are rumors that Apple is now trying to get involved uh, with self-driving cars. Do you, do you make anything of this? Or are, uh, are GM and Ford going to be uh, looking from the outside in soon? Oh, I imagine. I, I also imagine that this is a space that is just begging for some sort of agreed-upon constraints in terms of how these systems are going to behave with each other. Um you know, it's one thing to have self-driving car versus a ton of other cars on the road. Based on right. what I've read from Google's research, it's just a super defensive driver. It'll be interesting to see what happens when you have a Ford automated car sitting next to a GM car, sitting behind a Jag, sitting behind, you know, and everyone has their own system. So to me, that screams probably should have some commonality. Mm. Like a JDAC system or uh, IEEE standard. Right. So my guess is that we'll probably see this evolve the same way we saw, say, HTML standards evolve. I mean, we've had uh, numerous companies competing to uh, to give us web browsers over the years. And not always did they adhere to standards, but somehow we managed to limp our, you know, limp our way along. Well, for the most part, though, haven't most browsers – most browsers uh, – implemented html as opposed to trying to come up with their own markup language mm, i remember seem to remember microsoft introducing you know new new uh, standards or, or oh, new yeah. features uh, into the html standard well and you've also got the various scripting systems and flash and you know but i yeah maybe you've got a point I don't know. I, I, interoperability is going to be a big problem. And also how the heck they're going to ensure those things is going to be another huge problem. <laughs> yeah. And, and so the, uh, there was, I was listening to a podcast today. They were talking about the number of lives that would be saved from self-driving cars because of course, 
if programmed correctly, the computers don't get tired and, and uh, shouldn't, you know, the sensors shouldn't miss things that are obvious. Uh, but they were, uh, whoever I was listening to, and I can't remember right now, was talking about the, uh, the amount of attention that the first fatality due to a self-driving car was going to receive. I mean, we, we lose, I think they were saying 35 or 40,000 uh, people every year to traffic accidents, but uh, that first one is going to make national news. Well, you'd almost have to have a, I mean, let's assume that's right. And I believe it to be, but let's assume that, you know, you will save 30,000 people on the roads. You'd almost have to give the manufacturers some sort of like vaccine manufacturer, like exemption from hmm. litigation and say, you know, it's better for society that the one or two people that do die as a result of the software bug die as opposed to the 30,000 other ones that don't. And we don't want people getting sued to oblivion. Right. But. Yeah, that's going to be a, <laughs> that's going to be a tough one for the courts to sort out, I think. Yeah, and I can't wait for the, uh, I guess, getting into our topic, the uh, signalist merge through an intersection where the cars all just go, you know, get into their properly spaced distances so that they can fly through an intersection at 60 miles an hour, you know, cross-stitched uh, with traffic from the um, from the side, I guess. For, from the merging lane or something? Yeah. Yeah, so this could be kind of a wonderful uh, combination of uh, electrical engineering and computer engineering and mechanical engineering and, of course, civil engineering uh, as all those uh, – all those uh, fields, all those dis engineering disciplines uh, come together. And also, before we move on, I also wanted to – something that has rarely been mentioned when it comes to self-driving cars, if they're as effective at avoiding collisions as people claim, you can make them a little bit less robust, which means they can be lighter and consume substantially less fuel. Hmm. That's an interesting thought. Which is something I think gets lost in a lot of the discussion about these things. Hmm. Yeah, I'm giving some. I'm giving some thought to the whole uh, electrical uh, car type stuff. I was going to go off onto a, a tangent about how energy efficient electric cars were versus gasoline cars, but that's. Uh, I think that's a topic for another day. Absolutely, as an owner of electric <laughs> vehicle, it uh, they are pretty efficient. Are they? Okay. Oh yeah. Well, we will revisit that in another episode. But in this episode, we thought we would talk about traffic engineering. You know, there's a lot of effort that goes into uh, uh, building a road, into highway construction. There are people that have to lay out the roads and people that have to take care of the asphalt and moving the the, uh, the equipment in and moving the equipment out. And uh, I think sometimes we forget that an important part of building a road is marking the road and communicating to drivers – what they need to be doing as they're uh, traversing the highway. So uh, in this episode, we're going to talk about traffic engineering. And our guest for this episode is Adam, who happens to be a traffic engineer who works for a Midwestern state's uh, Department of Transportation. And in addition to being a licensed professional engineer, our guest is also a co-host uh, for a popular engineering podcast. Uh, Adam, welcome to the Engineering Commons. Well, thank you, Jeff, and thank you, Brian, for uh, letting me come and talk on the podcast. Well, I'm, I'm I'm so glad you could join us for this episode. Uh, so, so Adam, we we often uh, start our conversations by asking our guests uh, what got them interested in, in engineering. Well, I guess I I, I don't really have a, a specific event. Uh, I just sort of always knew I was uh, 
going to be an engineer of some form as soon as I could put uh, the the words to it. Um, mm-hmm. Specifically, got me interested in traffic engineering when I was in in uh, college. I was an intern for uh, a city and uh, kind of got pushed into the traffic engineering department and just it, it's kind of indescribable, but I, I I fell in love with traffic engineering and. Um, after about the first month, I realized that's what I wanted to do. Wow. Um, and since then I, I've gotten a master's engineering and traffic engineering. And, uh, after a, a brief, uh, sideline into, uh, into professional brewing, uh, I came back and, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, I'm now a, uh, a traffic engineer. Well, Fantastic. <laughs> so, so uh, exactly, exactly what is traffic engineering? I mean, obviously it has to do with traffic, has to do with engineering. What is, uh, uh, can you give us the quarter tour of what traffic engineering might be? Well, I, I'm sure there's lots of people with better definitions, but I would break it down into to two key pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is designing, operating, and maintaining all of the, the stuff out there on the road that tells the driver what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that be signs or markings um, or traffic signals and lighting and, and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the other part of it is really acting as the driver's advocate in the design process, you know, making sure that things are going to be efficient enough for the, the driver and that appro- appropriate efficiency is included. Um, looking out for safety and, and um you know, reviewing crash histories and and doing all those things really to look out for the the driver versus the pavement or the drainage or those other those other things that absolutely are important, right? Um, but those are are typically handled in a, by somebody else, and, I, and the traffic engineer is really focused on the driver. Okay, and and so how early in the process? So let's say that uh, someone decides they want to you know build a Interstate nine 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 through some. Uh, through some state, uh, how early does does the traffic engineer get pulled in? Is it very early in the process? Is it fairly late in the process? Um, usually, I get involved in in scoping, or a traffic engineer gets involved all the way from scoping. So when the the project is just sort of being identified, uh, mm-hmm. looking at some some very high level things like what is the intent to this to serve, how big of a road are we talking, how many lanes, things like that, all the way through. Um, more of the stuff I deal with on a, a much more regular basis, which is the the construction, uh, and then even beyond that into operations. Okay. So the whole process. And and so you, you mentioned construction. There are, are do certain traffic engineers concentrate more on you know layout and signage, and others uh, concentrate more on say construction of you know uh, signals and lights, that kind of stuff. Is it that specialized? Uh, it, it can be. I think it's like any field of engineering where um, it, it depends on where you work and who you work for as to how specialized you need to be. Okay. You know, I, I, my specialty is, uh, or my, my position focuses on design and construction for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. And I can, I have to cover everything. Uh, but I definitely know other engineers who, who do just, just signals or just roadway lighting and, and, and it can get very, very specialized in areas that have a, have a lot more um, complexity. Okay. And are uh, most traffic engineers employed by um, government or are there 
private firms that do this kind of work too? Um, I would say majority are in at least indirectly employed by government. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are definitely a lot of them working for private consulting firms, either as consultants for a government agency for especially smaller cities may not have, well, probably don't have uh, staff to, to, or have resources to staff a, a uh, traffic engineer or even an engineer period, as well as there are special developers need traffic studies and things like that, usually due to government regulations. Uh, but I think or at least my perspective is the majority do end up working either directly or indirectly for the government. I would th- say more indirectly, but, um, you know, infrastructure, traffic, um, roadways are just one of those things that it's a government service. So it naturally, um, the government ends up taking care of it and, and paying for these mm-hmm. services. And when you say indirectly, is that usually uh, engineering consulting firms? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Consulting firm working for a, on contract for a government agency or looking for co- contracts from a government agency. Okay. So I'm guessing they can keep a traffic engineer employed, say going from, uh, they might work for the state for a while or for a city for a while or for a township or, you mm-hmm. know, they can, they can sort of move around from between governmental agencies where a single governmental agency may not have the work to, uh, keep that person, uh, fully busy. Yep. Yes, absolutely. Or someone may become so specialized that, um, it makes more sense for them to, to help out in smaller projects that one agency just doesn't have enough of that specific specialty. Okay. I only specialize in clover leaves. <laughs> <laughs> it, it'll, it'll take you, uh, it, it would take a pretty big area to keep you busy. <laughs> Not if you design in enough clover leaves. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I suppose there's always, uh, well, you got to convince somebody that that's the right solution. Yeah, of course. So uh, we're all, I think, uh, pretty aware that uh, usually it's civil engineers that get involved in, in road construction. So is traffic engineering always taught within s- the schools of civil engineering, or can you can you find traffic engineering outside of a school of civil engineering? I am not aware of any um, any traffic engineering programs outside of civil engineering. And mm-hmm. I'll also add most of the traffic engineers I know have limited specialty education and it's more, uh, experience and after on the job training, post graduation training or, um, graduate training, um, rather than a bachelor's degree in traffic engineering. I, I'm not aware of, um, I'm sure they're out there, but I'm not aware of any bachelor's in traffic engineering. Okay. So, um, are there specific schools that specialize in it? You know, one, I mean, if, if you're interested in this, is there a place you might want to check out? Um, there are definitely schools that, that specialize um, or have stronger traffic engineering programs. Um, I think it's uh, I think it's Iowa State, not Iowa. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Iowa State. has got a relatively strong traffic engineering program. Uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison's got a relatively strong traffic engineering program. Um, those are the two I see or I'm most familiar with, but they're also local to me. The UW system's got some pretty strong traffic engineering programs uh, and a lot of schools have, have traffic engineering programs that are, that are quite good. See, and I would have thought they would have all been in states with horrible traffic problems. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
with the UCLA or NYU traffic management <laughs> programs. You know, uh, I guess I'm not all that familiar with uh, – I think Berkeley is the only one um, I'm really all that familiar with, and I'm not even extraordinarily familiar. And most of my familiarity with those programs is through papers, reading mm-hmm. papers that they've published. Um, so I, I don't know about other people, but at least you know, when I think about you know traffic – and, you know, traffic flow, I sort of, you know, to my mind, it has sort of a, a, a fluid or hydraulic analogy. I think of, you know, flow going through a pipe type of thing. I guess we could think of in electrical terms, current going through a wire, that kind of stuff. So what kind of, you know, what kind of terms, what kind of things do you think about? So if we're, if we're doing piping, then we think about, you know, pressure head, or, uh, we may talk about Reynolds number, or we may talk about, uh, uh, resistance to flow, those t- types of things. What, what types, what types of things do you think about when you're starting to worry about, uh, traffic flow? Uh, well, um, flow is absolutely one of those, um, one of those factors that we talk about, uh, which is the number of vehicles per hour, uh, usually defined as vehicles per hour. You know, so it's, it's vehicles in a, a period of time. Sometimes you do vehicles per 15 minutes and things like that, but Okay. Um, and, and so, so when we run over those, you know, they lay out the two, uh, the two air hoses across the, the road from time to time. What, what information are they gathering with that? Is that what they're looking for? How many, what the volume is? Uh, yes. Um, and, and that can be, it can actually can provide a ton of information. Uh, they can be set up to get speeds. You can get the, the classifications of the vehicles, you know, how many trucks versus cars, um, you can also, how do you know how, how many trucks? It's based on you can calculate the speed of the vehicle based on the time mm-hmm. between hitting the two tubes, and right. you can um, then correlate the speed. Assuming you know the front axle and the back axles are all traveling at the same speed, mm-hmm. the, a computer algorithm, which uh, some computer programmer came up with, can figure out how many axles and what the spacing of those axles is. And, and put it into a, a bin to figure out if that is a truck or if it's two cars or five cars, um, just based on figuring out how many axles there are and what are the spacing of those axles. Hmm. Clever. So I've got to come up with a unique vehicle just to mess with those systems. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, they do throw a certain amount into the unclassified bin, meaning it couldn't figure it out. Um, and there are definitely... It's not perfect, but uh, one one of the key aspects of, of traffic engineering is everything's approximate. Everything is statistical. Statistically, it's this. Um, you know, with with electronics, if you put five volts through a resistor, you're going to get a certain amount of current every single time. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to have the same number of cars every day. Um. And I'm not going to have the same drivers every day. So what may work one day may not work the next day, but on a, on an aggregate level, it, it works out. So everything has to be kind of, you have to disassociate the, the, the actual number isn't that precise. Mm-hmm. It, it's a, it's a good approximation. It's in the range. Okay. So, so if you, ca- so if you start with average, I think you said it was average volume. Then, how do you how do you figure out what you know what your peak conditions are? Is is there a statistical model then, or is it do you use the same model for everything? Is it a Gaussian curve, or just how in the world do you figure out 
if you've got a measurement at three in the afternoon, what traffic is going to be like at six in the morning? Uh, well, it typically takes local data. Um, and if that's something you need, you can either collect data for you know those hours and assume it's relatively similar throughout the year, or, or there are uh, collecting data at one location in an area, um, typically like on a major highway where you can put in a fancy uh, 24-7 instrumentation array. You can say, mm-hmm. oh, okay, well, you know, Saturdays we see traffic pick up, so I can assume, you know, 25% more traffic on Saturday. If I take a 24-hour count on a Tuesday, I can relate those and say, well, on a Saturday, assuming it's a similar expected type of travel on that road, this is what I'd expect here. Or mm-hmm. I can just count, if I really need it that accurate, I can count on a Saturday and assume that's a typical Saturday, (laughs) hope it's a typical Saturday or, um, and that's one of the things to look out for is making sure that you're counting on a typical day, um, which doesn't always happen, but, um, you try to, and and you look to make sure that things haven't changed too much from the last time you counted them counted in that area. Um, or that you can explain the difference. Mm hmm. So a, a lot of traffic counting comes down to getting uh, what's called ADT or AADT, which is the average daily traffic. It's it's really a very high level number of approximately what's going on here, about how many cars there are, um, and that can it, it just allows a very broad comparison between things. Okay, and so so I'm thinking about so a typical engineering constraint is if if I want to uh, pump a lot of fluid through a system, uh, then I need bigger pipes, but bigger pipes take more material and, and typically there's more cost associated with that. So what does the discussion normally look like when you go, okay, uh, I, don't, I have no idea what reasonable numbers are, so <laughs> forgive me for making up numbers. Uh, so we say we've got a, you know, a, a average daily traffic of you know, a quarter million cars per day. And we, in order to do this, we need three lanes and we go, well, we've only got money for one lane or, or something like that. So, so what did those conversations typically look like when you're trading off what you think the traffic is, is asking for versus what the, the governmental agency is going, what, well, this is what we have money for. Oh, I think those go about like any, any conversation about trade-offs, um, I will say, at least in, in my experience, typically it, it, the conversation doesn't go quite that way. Uh, at least nowadays, we have mm-hmm. a pretty established system, and most of what we're doing is fixing the problems on the system. We're not building Interstate 999. We're taking the existing interstate and, oh, there's a traffic jam here. Let's look at it. And, and we're saying, what do we need to do to fix this problem? Okay. Um, and I think most people have a general idea, or at least the, the the people making the decisions with the money have a pretty good idea that it's going to cost a lot of money to do this, or it's going to cost money to do this. Um, right? They may not dis- they may not agree, and they may accept. You know, okay, I say you need to add two lanes to alleviate this congestion. Well, what happens if we only put one lane in? What is that going to do for our delay? Um, mm-hmm. and that may be an acceptable, uh, acceptable cost to the public. Uh, and, okay. and that's, um, I guess one thing I'll, I'll digress a little. 
one of the major differences that I've seen in, in a public works traffic engineering setting, there is cost, but then just because we improve the system doesn't increase revenue. Uh, revenue is, is generally speaking fixed, set by, by laws, by legislatures and politics. Right. Um, the cost savings and, and the benefit part is benefit to the people. We never realize that dollar amount. You mean you, the governmental agency? Correct. The, the, the governmental okay. agency. So the investment never has a, investing wisely improves the overall economy, but the, that investment, you can't reinvest it. Right. But, but certainly somebody must be making economic you know, impact studies, uh, you know, they have economic impact studies for things like, you know, uh, pro sports teams and putting a racetrack in the vicinity and that kind of stuff. There must be something that somebody's done for, for cutting your traffic delay from 30 minutes to 15 minutes. Oh, absolutely. There are studies into uh, user costs, um, costs of what is it costing the public for fuel and time mm -hmm. based on, on congestion or, or delays or diversions. Um, and, and that's a, a very important factor when looking at, you know, well, this may cost a million dollars, but it's going to not fixing it is going to cost us $20 million a year in, in right. to the public. That doesn't mean that you have the money to spend to fix the problem, but it can definitely help rationalize that, that improvement. Hmm. Okay. So at, at the risk of taking us even further off topic, but now <laughs> you've got me curious. So we have in my home state of Indiana, in between Indianapolis and Chicago, uh, there is uh, by the city of West Lafayette, which is where Purdue is. There is a bridge on I-65 going north that they were working construction on and they had a problem in one of the, uh, the piers shifted like nine inches and that surprised them. And now they're doing studies. And anyway, the long story, not so short is that I 65 North between Indianapolis, which is a major, you know, in the U S a major mm -hmm. Midwest shipping hub because five interstates crisscross in Indianapolis and Chicago, which is obviously a big hub also in the Midwest. You cannot drive in a straight line between Indianapolis and Chicago anymore. They, they, you know, in, in order to get around this, they're routing traffic because the bridge is out. They're mm -hmm. routing traffic uh, around and, you know, literally you're going down two lane highways. You know, these semis are going down two lane asphalt roads, maneuvering their way around to get back to uh, the north side of the bridge so they can continue their traffic, uh, their travels up to uh, Chicago. And so the question that I've, I've been talking with, with uh, friends and family about is just what in the world is it costing the state of Indiana to have that bridge out? I know there has to be some economic impact, but I haven't a clue where I would start to get that number. Uh, I'm not asking you to put mm -hmm. a, a, you know, a number on it, but just, you know, where does one start to figure that out? The opportunity cost of all those deep dish Chicago pizzas you're not getting. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, well, there there is definitely in a situation like that, there is a cost in, in, in lost travel, which is a little bit harder to, um, to determine. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the, the cost of that additional delay, uh, it's not trivial, but it's not a, a extraordinarily difficult to calculate how much more time it takes, you know, with all the congestion, with the additional mileage to, to travel that longer, that longer route. 
with that yeah. much lower capacity. It, it, it takes about 45 minutes to make the extra travel. Yeah. Um, and then there would be a, a study of, you know, what do average drivers, people who are traveling make uh, mm-hmm. an hour and what is the value of their time? Um, and then there's a, a, you'll have a factor and, and these are all uh, regional, uh, typically state by state. These factors are developed. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, the factor for how much fuel based on percentage of commercial vehicles versus um, passenger cars right. and commercial traffic versus residential traffic or um, recreational traffic and uh, commuter traffic, which are, are, are viewed a little bit differently. Uh, commercial traffic is generally viewed as a little more, more impact. Um, sorry, your, your drive home when you're not getting paid isn't, isn't quite worth as much um, mm-hmm. it, at least in general. And, and so using that with the delay and the extra mileage, it, it's actually a pretty simple calculation of this is how much delay, this is how much every minute of delay per person is worth, this is mm-hmm. how many people are getting delayed, um, this is the mileage, this is the cost per mile for that additional travel, and you just multiply it up and, and uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> it gives you a, usually a really big number. Right, right. Well, I'm I'm sitting here sort of smiling to myself thinking, you know, Jeff, that was kind of a silly question because no matter how big that number is, it's not going to get them to fix the bridge any faster. They're going as fast as they can. Exactly. And that cost is to the people of the state of Indiana, not to the state of Indiana, the the organization. Right. Um, and, and it's not like if the state's going to fix it as fast as they can. Um, right, but it's not a, a check the state has to write every every day. The the, right. the DOT agency, right? So, so let me go back and I'll just I'll finish up my my uh, I sixty five bridge story with this question is so I sixty five is pretty heavily trafficked uh, as I indicated. Uh, there's a lot of shipping that goes or trucking shipping that goes out of Chicago and out of Indianapolis. And you mentioned average uh, average daily traffic. So this is a for you know, great long stretches. It's a two lane, uh, two lanes going north, two lanes going south. About how much traffic does an inter- U.S. interstate see? You know, it, it it really varies. The interstate is less about volumes, more about the the regional connections. Um. Oof. Okay, so uh, it's, sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I just I didn't know if there was like a rough rule of thumb that. You know, this was about the traffic for an interstate. Um, you know, I seem to recall because this was a question on a test I had, which uh, in in college, which uh, I, I do hold a little bit of a grudge against. This, I want to say it's something like two million ADT on an interstate in Atlanta, and uh, there's a section of interstate over in in my area which is thirteen thousand. Um, so it, it's That's quite a difference. <laughs> Yeah. Um, the section of interstate that, that I'm thinking about over here is it's rural. Um, there are a lot of trucks and it's an important commercial corridor, but it's four lanes of interstate connecting important hubs, but it's, mm-hmm. it, it's not like in a, uh, like in a downtown core. Right. Okay. So I've, I've, I've diverted you, uh, greatly from, from where we started, which was just some of the, some of the terminology and some of the factors that go into, uh, planning what kind of traffic engineering uh, issues are, are to be considered. Yeah. 
Um, well, I think that actually we can transition that relatively well into a, a little bit of a talk about traffic jams. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just took one of those on my way to the podcast. <laughs> so perfect timing. Well, a, a little bit of a, a discussion on, on how that works. Um, so when we start talking about freeway traffic or, or free flow traffic, there, there's three key factors to keep in mind. Um, which is the density, the the number of vehicles in a mile, mm-hmm. the flow, which is the number of vehicles per hour past a certain point, and the speed, which is you know your miles per hour. Mm-hmm. Where do I factor in how much more intelligent I am than the other drivers? <laughs> <laughs> um, unfortunately for you, your intelligence doesn't matter. It all gets kind of aggregated together into uh, the capacity. See, I always knew the man was bringing me down. I ain't average. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, the, the actually in capacity calculations, there is a, a regional, there are some regional factors in there uh, really? that can be applied. That's brutal. Oh, man. Can you, can you reveal what's the dumbest region? I, 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 do not, <laughs> um, I do not know them. They're not generally published. They're more of a calibration factor. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. But. A likely story. Um, you know, if, if I were doing a. Uh, a calculation, I would uh, definitely give a little more factor, and I have given a little bit more of a, a capacity reduction for the area um, in which I live compared to um, some major metropolitan areas, uh, which I, I work in a more a rural portion of a state. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, rural drivers tend to be a little less aggressive. It, it, it's a factor. So anyway, it, back isn't, to isn't, isn't, oh, isn't that sort of a self-feeding spiral? You know, you 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 live in an area with a more aggressive driver, so you have to be more aggressive to get into the and out of the flow. So, the entire traffic becomes more aggressive. Uh, to a degree, um, there, I think definitely there's opportunities for non-aggressive drivers to, um, you know, get very stressed out and drive through uh, areas with aggressive drivers. But yeah, I, I in in large, I believe it to be a, a self-feeding spiral. <laughs> So what causes a traffic jam? Well, to get there, uh, you need to understand how speed flow and density are related, which it's there's actually a curve to it, which is it seems a little odd at first. Um, basically, when you have low density, you generally have low speed or low flows, but high speed traffic. So low density, low flow rates because you got less cars trying to do, go through but your speeds are high. Mm-hmm. Um, as you increase your flow, your your density also increased to a, a moderate density compared to the maximum density you can get there. And your speeds are, are moderate. And that, you can reach a optimum flow where your density is not at your peak, but your, your speed is generally, um, generally pretty close to your, your peak free flow speed. Mm-hmm. And then as you continue to try to shove more and more cars in, your density increases and your your flow rate goes down and your speed goes down and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So as you try to pump more cars into the roadway, you end up being able to get less cars through. And until all those cars in the road can get served and get out of the way, it's just going to get worse. And, and that's what happens when, when you have a traffic jam, your density exceeds your, your optimum, your speed and your flow rates start to drop. So as, your demand keeps going up and you keep trying to get more cars through. You can, 
you get less and less cars through as you try to get more and more through. And it spirals out of out of control until you stop trying to shove more cars into the road. So, yes, I, I understand that. But I've been on fairly empty roads where you end up behind two trucks that are, you know, one is traveling uh, 64 miles an hour and the other one's traveling 64 and a half miles an hour. Uh, one passing the other, and it it takes them you know five miles for one truck to get past the other. So so, do you just treat this as you know a statistical anomaly? It's going to happen every so often. Uh, th- there's a certain degree of that, um, and I guess I would even go so far as to say the the capacity at any given time is is less a factor. It's partially a factor of the roadway, but it's also a factor of the the events going on. So if you've got those two cars, well, those two vehicles, they're they're controlling your flow rate, they're decreasing your capacity. Or if you have a, a crash, all of a sudden you lose a lane, you lose your capacity. Um, or even if you don't lose a lane, you've got looky-loos who all of a sudden are slowing down, you've lost your capacity. Um, and so that, that optimum flow drops is what, what ends up happening. You, you, you shift your, your capacity curve. Right. You forgot my personal favorite, which is the president comes to your metropolitan area and crosses <laughs> your commute during rush hour. That is absolutely a factor that can cause trouble. Oh, jeez. <laughs> By the way, you used a term there, uh, Adam, uh, looky-loo. Is that a – It's an industry term. Is that an official official term? Uh, n- no, no. Um, I will say there are plenty of um, – no, what's the right word for this? No, keep in mind we're a we're a family podcast here. <laughs> <laughs> there there are slang terms in in traffic engineering. Uh, many of them we we end up uh, stealing or borrowing from our, our uh, law enforcement friends. Um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, rubberneckers, uh, and then there are plenty of other other uh, not so family friendly uh, words. Right. <laughs> Um, but I think we've, we've all seen it. You drive by a crash or even construction and everybody wants to watch. And so all of a sudden, right by the crash, everybody's going 15 miles an hour when there's really no reason to. Hmm. See, I try to keep your calculations, you know, in the ballpark. So I always go, I just speed through. I do, I do 90 to make up for them. So your averages are better. (laughs) (laughs) So when you, when one of these happens, like sometimes, You'll get to the accident side or the construction site and it starts to open up and then, or, or maybe behind the site, if that's really the, the constraint, the, the, you know, where the, the bottleneck really is, sometimes upstream of that, things will get really slow and then it will open up and you drive like crazy for, for a mile and then it bottles up again and then it'll open up for a half mile and then bottle up again. So what is causing this, you know, this sort of accordion effect to go on? Idiots. <laughs> um, to a degree, yes, actually. Um, there's something called shockwave or shockwave theory. Um, I, I think it's maybe a little more than a theory. Uh, and in the show notes, I included a, a little video, which uh, I, I hope uh, hope Jeff will link in, that really shows it exactly. And basically, because it takes people a few seconds, two or three seconds to react to things, Mm-hmm. You can, if you have a crash is your typical example, you have a crash, it takes a lane, it breaks down your, your freeway, you, you end up, um, and breakdown is one of those technical terms for, for losing capacity. Uh, it is actually a technical term in this case. Um, you, you get the, so you have this traffic jam going on. 
you get the crash off the roadway, so you've opened up your your capacity again. Mm-hmm. Um, the the traffic jam will dissipate from the front of the jam, and it takes people a second or two to to realize what's going on and to start going forward. Um, and sometimes they start going forward too fast, and they run into the people behind them, and 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 so you get this accordion effect. Accordion effect, right? Um, and it's 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 based on reaction time, and people can't react so quickly. And so, uh, Brian self or driverless cars, uh, self driving cars, right, will definitely be better at that uh, because it won't take them as long, and they'll be able to judge that speed that they need to be going better to not create that shockwave. They can all start moving simultaneously as opposed to the cascading stimulus mm-hmm. of having the person in front of you's brake light turn off, right? Exactly. Well, and somebody, uh, there was some engineering seminar that I went to where the uh, speaker was talking about the need. If you're going to do that, the driver of the car needs to know not just how fast the car directly in front of them is going, but they need to know like how far the car at the front of the pack is going in order to optimize the speed that they're going to travel. And of course, with today's technology, none of us have that. Uh, we have to wait for the driverless cars, I guess, to, to feed that information to us or, or Google Maps to feed it to us. Yeah. Or um, there's actually a system and this is, thank you for the great segue uh, into intelligent transportation systems. Uh, there's a, <laughs> <laughs> there's a, a type of intelligent transportation system uh, being used called intelligent lane control or ILCS, which I think is the last, the S is for systems, I believe. Okay. Um, where they'll put signs over top of the lane and they'll tell you what speed you should be driving because yeah. that's the speed of stuff ahead of you. Now, nobody does that or <laughs> not nobody. Uh, very few people do that. And so you mean very few drivers actually obey the commands? Uh, less of a command and more of a suggestion. Okay. Uh, <laughs> There's actually a legal distinction there, but uh, yeah, it's an attempt. If if you drive that speed on that sign, it should minimize. But basically, by increasing that space and getting you slowed down to the right speed, it'll give that shock wave, that jam in front of you, a little bit of time to dissipate, and it'll it'll push you into that flow rate, that speed that you should be driving at, so that you don't get that jam and that shock wave effect, and mm-hmm. you're able to that shock wave is able to clear. So it's like a, the damping factor in a control system. <laughs> exactly. Um, but most people are are um, inherently, uh, I'm going to use the word selfish. Um, and so there it's like, oh, well, I don't need to do that. I'm going to drive all the way up as fast as I can. I'm not going to slow down because it's going to take me. And, and um, I don't have a technical term for this factor, but when people are in a car, I think they, well, I know they lose perspective of time. It's going to take me 10 more minutes if I slow down that three miles an hour. <laughs> um, so they hurry up to the front of the pack and then get stuck in the jam. And try to cut people off. <laughs> and everybody else does the same thing. Um, versus if if everybody just, you know, takes their turn and it slows down a little bit, you probably are going to get through it faster, to be honest. Than if you if you were to sit there and it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to beat the system and I'm going to go all the way up to the traffic jam and then stop. Because I'm gonna, I'm gonna get through. And why has no one else thought of this? <laughs> Wait, yeah, but I'm, I'm thinking when we get to the self-driving cars, people are gonna be paying a lot of money to have the algorithm in their car adjusted so they go a little faster than everybody else. <laughs> That's why you got to be the one guy who detunes his algo so that you just hold everyone up. 
<laughs> and then just shrug. It's the car. It's the car. <laughs> yeah, I didn't do it. <laughs> There's a program bug. <laughs> always, bl- always blame the software guys, right? Is it always the software guys' problem or fault? <laughs> On this show, it is. <laughs> um. So, anyways, I threw out there a term: intelligent transportation systems, which I'm I'm going to define a little bit, um, a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically, that's a a newer approach of using computers and electronic systems to improve the safety and efficiency of roadways. Usually Um, it's probably a little broader, but that's, that's really the way I operate with it. Um, And that can include things like traffic cameras. A lot of metropolitan areas have traffic cameras, which you can see on the news, but that's just a side benefit. They're really there for like state patrol dispatchers to see there's a crash right there. All right. I need an ambulance and a fire truck and, and a couple squad cars right here, right now, mm-hmm. and not have to wait for that 911 call to come through or be able to make that decision and, and let the, let that fire truck on the way know what to expect. Mm-hmm. So that they're ready to go once they get on the scene and it saves them that, that minute to assess the scene. Right. Um, there's other systems like that, that intelligent lane control system, which, uh, you can provide additional feedback to the drivers. Um, and then there's systems like, uh, ramp metering, which is a method of, of managing the amount of flow into the freeway to basically hold people on the ramp to keep the freeway moving and to keep that freeway as close to that optimum density and optimum flow rate as possible. And, you know, it, it feels like when you're in that, on that ramp, it's going to take me longer to get there, but with the freeway moving, it, it generally actually helps the people on the ramp get there faster because they've got to wait 15 seconds, 20 seconds, mm-hmm. but otherwise they'd be waiting for 10 minutes on the, on the freeway. Right. Um, so, so one of the things about those ramps though, that so, at least the ones I've, I've seen, uh, usually you come up and they've got some sort of a red light there to say when you can't go. So mm-hmm. during heavy traffic periods, the, you know, the traffic comes to a stop and you're sort of released one at a time into back into that traffic. But my concern is always the, the time they, the space you're given to accelerate seems so short. And I wonder, well, how many accidents are caused by people trying to get into the flow of traffic? I've had that same thought. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm not, I'm not the only one. Okay. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if any studies have been performed, but at least uh, from my perspective, I'm not. Oh, I haven't seen very many of those. Okay, uh, I'm sure they happen, uh, and they are placed far enough up the road to actually give you time to get in. Uh, you know, it's a balance between having enough space for a queue and having enough speed, uh, space to accelerate and merge onto the freeway. Okay, safely. Well, I, th- I figured somebody had studied this. I just it just always seemed like. You know, it, it, when traffic isn't heavy, uh, it sometimes takes a bit of doing to get yourself merged and, and trying to merge into that traffic coming from a dead stop, you know, and getting up to speed with traffic that's going 70 miles an hour seemed like a bit of a challenge. It, it definitely, it definitely can be a challenge. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, speaking as one of those, uh, more rural drivers rather than urban drivers who's a little more aggressive. Um, right. And, and how do which direction we have to convert for uh, kilometers per hour for our international listeners who who wonder what in the world this miles per hour stuff is that we're talking about? There's five kilometers is three point one miles. I know that one. So that's a uh, one point six one. So if I'm driving 
60 miles an hour. Is that 96 kilometers per hour? 96 kilometers per hour. At 60 hey, miles I got it right. All right. Yes. All right. Google confirms so, it. Okay. So when we're talking in miles per hour, 60 miles per hour is about 97 kilometers per hour. Yeah. I'm guessing equivalent would be 100 mile per hour or kilometer per hour, not mile per hour, kilometer per hour road. Okay. Just because they, you know, you round things to even, even fives and tens. It's easier for people to think about. Okay. Well, I, I note that about half our listeners come from outside the U.S., so I thought we should at least do what we could for <laughs> converting <laughs> units for them. All right. So yeah, that's a good point. So we've got uh, we've got these intelligent uh, systems. We've got uh, the overhead signs that tell you uh, how fast to go. We've got the road meters that's, that that uh, close down the the on ramps to sort of meet out how how many cars should be joining the uh, uh, the flow. Any other means of controlling uh, controlling flow down the interstate? Well, another one that's uh, definitely gaining traction is uh, managed lanes or uh, toll lanes or uh, hot lanes, H-O-T for high occupancy toll, which are various versions of of lanes that are, are given a price, um, some sort of toll. And mm-hmm. the toll lanes on a, a freeway are not there to generate revenue. Uh, what they are there to do is manage demand. Are you sure? I, I am <laughs> absolutely positive. Um, I, I've, you know, not in detail, but I have a, a pretty good idea of, of how the uh, managed lane system, the, the, the rough financials of how it works in, in uh, my state. It's not a money-making proposition. Um, well, there, there, there's some money in there someplace because I know going up to uh, to visit relatives in the Chicago area, I used to be able to get from the south side of Chicago up to the north suburbs for about $2, and, and now it costs me about 12 So <laughs> somebody is concerned about the money. Well, in Chicago area, is a little bit of a difference. Those are our full toll roads. Those are private roads, usually, I, I believe. Um, at least I know some of them are. Okay. And that's a, a little different story where they are trying to actually pay for the road. Um, when it's just a, a individual lane that is being told, it, it's about demand management. Okay. Um, and so, you know, previously I talked about how you, you want that optimum flow. And if you try to push too many cars into a lane, you, you get a backup and you can actually, it turns out if you keep people or get that optimum number, optimum density, you can increase your flow rate. So those lanes are priced to an optimum flow rate. Mm-hmm. So as as congestion happens on the general purpose lanes or the lanes that are not tolled, um, the price on the toll lane will go up as more and more people try to take that that toll lane. And it, it's it'll go up as that toll lane starts to starts to get congested to get less and less people to use it. But keeping that lane moving. So you're basically auctioning off that lane on an ongoing basis. <laughs> yes. Um, with a, a hot lane, carpools are always are free. Buses are free. Uh, and it's really about being able to move more and more people. Because even with – and these tolls don't tend to be, at least in, in uh, most managed lane situations that I'm aware of, they don't tend to be terribly high tolls, you know, a few dollars. But it's enough to get people – if they're not in a hurry – they don't feel the need to use that lane if the price gets too high. If they're in a hurry, they can pay a little bit, get through, and we're keeping that lane moving. 
And sometimes it can be three times the number of vehicles can get served in that toll lane that can get served in the general purpose lane right next to it because that lane just kept moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there have been studies into that. Um, it, they work. And actually, a toll lane can take the place of multiple general purpose lanes because you can keep it moving. Yeah, so, it's, so my brain is going to, I know some states, and I, I'm thinking Oregon, but I'm not sure it was starting to tax the number of miles driven on the roads. I mm-hmm. mean, with today's GPS and stuff, you can keep track of that sort of stuff. As Are we, you know, 10 years out, assuming that we're not all being driven around by Google and Apple cars? Uh, are we looking at, you know, just some sort of stream of funds constantly being taken out of our bank account based on which lane we're in and how fast we're going? It's uh, completely possible. I'm asking you for a technical assessment, not a political assessment as to whether that's right or wrong or might happen. I'm just <laughs> it, it, it's completely possible. Um, to be honest, that's more definitely more political, uh, politically oriented than technically oriented. Right now, we have the technology sure. to do it. Um, it's a matter of, you know, the funding mechanisms are generally, you know, this is kind of a, a peek behind the curtain into departments of transportation. Um, funding mm-hmm. is set by legislators who are politicians. Um, they're the ones who, who get, uh, flack for setting taxes. Um, okay. And, but with things like electric vehicles, which are, you know, traditionally roads have been funded through the gas tax, um, Mm -hmm. which is really, it's a user fee is the way it works out. And the people who are using people who use the road more buy more gas, pay for more of the road. Right. Um, electric vehicles, at least in many places don't have that. Um, they're not using gas. So um, who's to say what's going to happen? That, that's really, it's politics. <laughs> I'm definitely right. not going to have the answer to that one. Uh, and if right. somebody does, um, they're going to be rich. If they've got the answer <laughs> to what politics are going to do. <laughs> right. Right. Well, so we, we've talked a little bit about what happens on the, uh, the interstate where Usually there's not a whole lot of si- – uh, I guess there's a lot of signage, but there's not a lot of uh, traffic lights, that sort of thing. Um, actually, there would be zero. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, you indicated earlier that you live in more of a rural area. So I'm guessing that most uh, – more of the traffic work that you do does somehow involve this uh, this top of, type of you know lighting and the intersection uh, signals, that sort of thing. Um, I, I deal with some, um, uh, being as I work with the DOT, I do have the, I work on the higher volume roads, but I definitely do work with, uh, with signals. Okay. Um, and, and that's a, uh, it's a definitely an older form of congestion management, traffic management at intersections, which to be honest, segments of roadway are pretty simple. Um, if you've got enough lanes or you've got enough capacity on the, on freeways, they're, they're going to function how they're going to function. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's intersections are where your capacity becomes a problem. Um, having to serve two roadways in the same space. Right. Um, and traffic signals are a way of doing it, um, which are, are definitely one that people talk about a lot and think about a lot. And there's other options like roundabouts, which are, are very, very, excuse me, very, very efficient and cheaper long-term because you don't have to pay for power and maintenance and repair and things like that as much mm-hmm. any more so than the road. They don't go out in the weather. Yep. Yep. Um, people don't um, knock them over. 
You can't run a roundabout. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, maybe if you're in a giant like Hummer or something. Uh, they, they're designed to make that extraordinarily difficult. Um, <laughs> lightning doesn't take them out. Flooding, well, flooding can take the road out, but you know, water getting into conduits doesn't cause problems. It, um, they don't need to be relamped. Well, the, the lighting in a roundabout does, but uh, the roundabout itself can still function. Um, they're actually, you know, extremely simple and just work. Um, so, so in, so in our area, they've built quite a few of roundabouts in the last several years. Is this, is this a growing national or international trend or is it just, just my part of the world? From what I have seen, it's in my part of the world too. Uh, and I don't see it going any, going away anytime soon. Okay. Um, Right now, there is a lot of interest in the study as to what a capacity of a, a single lane roundabout is, and it's something internationally engineers are having trouble figuring out because they've just shown to be so efficient. Hmm. Um, I mean, we, we know that there are some things that they cannot handle, but we, we have yet to really figure out what that breakdown point is. And, and so far, they tend to perform hmm. better than we anticipate. Okay. Well, that's, that's a good problem to have if you're a traffic engineer. And, and, absolutely, <laughs> and they're also s- safer than um, the the old alternative from twenty years ago, which is the signal, um, because it's hard. Well, as Carmen said, hard to run a run a roundabout, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> and actually, signals tend to increase crashes. You know, and I'm talking very broad strokes here in general tonight. Um, no, I still see your point, though. You, you know, anecdotally, everybody can relate to that. You know, the one broken signal that lets two cars through and then changes again. Yep. Uh, all of a sudden, you're stopping people in the middle of the road, which might be a high-speed road, and you've got people, you know, stopped and people not seeing that the people in front of them are stopped. You're running in rear ends. You've got people running red lights and, and causing right-angle collisions. Um, there's no barrier there. There's nothing to stop the person other than a light. Mm-hmm. which isn't going to stop anybody. Yeah, photons um, don't have enough mass for that. <laughs> no, no. It, it's the person who decides to stop and follow that signal. So it, signals are old-style technology. Um, with uh, There's a lot of complexity to them in, in the way they're set up and a lot of redundancy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, they seem like they'd be a pretty simple thing to set up. And if uh, you were to pick up an Arduino, you could definitely make a traffic signal simulator, but traffic signals have to function 24 seven in horrible, horrible environment, you know, outside they have to deal with the heat of summer inside a metal cabinet where the controller is in the dead of winter inside that metal cabinet without a heater. Um, and they have to function hundred percent without failure all the time. Right. So I, I assume then these these uh, enclosures are airtight, watertight, or do do they have some sort of means of, of uh, uh, getting ventilation so you can get the heat out? Uh, they're generally, um, and you know, the, the ones I'm familiar with, they uh, are not watertight. Actually, okay. They um, they'll have a little bit of a, a overhang on the roof, and they'll have venting um, and gaskets in the bottom, but they'll drain a little bit. Um, humidity and moisture is expected to get in and dealt with accordingly, you know, allowed to drain out of the bottom of the cabinet, hopefully without messing with the electronics. Um, hopefully. Yep. And the electronics have to be able to handle a little bit of incidental moisture. Um, that's just, that's the nature of, uh, 
nature of dealing with things out in, in the environment. And that's, uh, you know, it, it, anytime in a, a traffic engineering perspective, you're trying to implement some technology, triple the price of what you think it's going to cost because you've got to deal with that hardened equipment. Hmm. Sounds like the pie rule to me. But it's cheaper. <laughs> but cheaper. <laughs> that's after you implement the pie rule. Oh, that's after. Okay. Because <laughs> uh, I will I will tell you 100%, a household PC, a PC bought off the shelf, will not function in that, that situation. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And, and so how do you tell – so how does this – computer that's or controller that's working in these horrible conditions uh how does it tell if it's got a problem uh well there's a a piece of equipment inside the cabinet which is you know even simpler it's not even a computer um it's called a conflict monitor that uh has a soldered card a card with soldered jumpers on it Mm -hmm. inserted in that if Conflicting phases, conflicting indications, and I can go back and define phase, um, come up. The signal just says, I'm done. Go to flash. And that's all it can do until somebody fixes it. And that's so, you know, you don't get a green light on two opposing, opposing, uh, directions. And it's, it's an extremely simple, extremely simple device. And, you know, that's a part of it is always failing safe. Right. Uh, so, oh, go ahead. So when there's a failure, you know, the, the, the yellow light flashes for a while and then you'll see somebody come out and they'll have some sort of controller, um, that, that looks like it's plugged into the, the a cabinet beside the road. So it, is that a controller and what are they just, are they just cycling through the various, uh, uh, states of the, uh, I don't know, the intersection? Um, the, the, the piece of the device that the person would be holding would be just a computer. Okay. Just an interface because the controllers are early '90s, late '80s technology um, okay. style interface. Um, the controllers I'm familiar with have a number pad and an LCD display and a whole bunch of um, mil spec connectors, mm-hmm. and that's and a power switch, and that's it. Okay, um, so you can sit there with the little 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 um, uh, numpad. And, and program the controller, but that's really hard, and it's way easier just to do it on a computer and plug into the serial port. And yes, it's still using serial. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm not aware of any USB controllers. I'm sure they're out there, but um, yeah, if, if they've got the little device, it's it's probably something like a tablet that it's it's just way easier to to enter the data that way than it is you know going through old school menus. Right. And, and are the computers that are running, are they actually computers? Are they like PLCs, programmable logic controllers? Um, they're, they're more based on a, a, a microcontroller. Okay. Uh, is my understanding. And, um, I'll, it, you've kind of reached the level of my understanding of how, um, what the actual internals are. Mm-hmm. Uh, the controllers are all certified by, uh, NEMA, the National Electrical Manufacturers Association, which creates all sorts of standards for traffic signal equipment as well as a lot of the uh, standards of how traffic signal timings are, are described actually mm-hmm. um, with, you know, they, they're the ones who came up with phase numbers, which are um, in my opinion, slightly unnecessarily confusing. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but, you know, as far as the internals, uh, I suppose you could do a PLC if it were certified. Okay. But 
Um, my understanding is most of them is using 1980s era microcontrollers. Okay. Uh, but you don't really need a lot of the computing power of, of a traffic signal is actually not that critical or that it's not that demanding. Right. Um, the programs are generally pretty simple. It's a time of day. You give them a, there's a couple of different signal timings, which I'll, I'll go into. There's a pre-timed where it's this phase, which a phase is just a, a, a left turn would be a phase. A through movement would be a phase. And there are eight phases potentially at a signal. Eat this phase gets this long, then this phase gets this long, then this phase gets this long. Mm-hmm. And that can be, you know, okay, from 9 to – or 7 to 9.30, we're on this timing plan. And then we go to this timing plan until noon, and then this timing plan for two hours, and then this at PM rush, and this overnight. Um, but it's still pre predetermined. It'll operate that same timing plan no matter what's going on. Okay. And is the clock inside there accurate? It's pretty good. <laughs> so I'm I'm guessing they're not logging into the internet to update their their internet clock every 24 hours. Well, uh, some of them are. Wow. Okay. Um, not the internet specifically, but to a central computer um, using something called interconnect. Uh, typically, a pre-time signal it won't be an issue. But um, kind of the next step, which is semi-actuated. Mm-hmm. Um, would need interconnect, um, which is just communications to synchronize the clocks. Okay. Um, and a semi-actuated signal is kind of a cross between a pre-timed and an actuated signal where it can, the, the signal will detect what the traffic's like and will only selectively provide service to certain phases. If there's nobody sitting on the left turn, uh, in the left turn bay, mm-hmm. it's not going to bring up the left turn arrow. If there's right. nobody sitting on the side street, it's not going to bring up the side street because uh, it doesn't need to. And it can serve more of that through traffic. And in my uh, experience, this is by far the most common style of traffic signal timing. Um, it, it serves a main line well, and, and it only as needed serves the, the side streets. And so how does it – can you explain a little more about this trade-off between being – uh, accommodating traffic, but then being pre-timed, how, how does it make that trade-off? Well, within the timing plan, the there will be a um, – basically, it'll be – the pre-timed timing will be set up. Mm-hmm. And it will say at you know this second of the cycle, you need to go to green on uh, the, the primary phase, uh, mm-hmm. um, which is two or six, okay. which are, are the mainline through phases. At this time, you need to be on two and six. Right. And you need to give two and six the, at least this much time. And then after that, it'll look, is there, uh, is there traffic on the next phase that I'm supposed to serve? If uh, there is, okay. it'll give that, that phase service. So, so you, you have, you've set up sort of maximum timings, but it can short, it can short any of those timings if need be based on traffic. It can shorten or, uh, the main line can be extended. Ah, okay. Um, cause we, we want to keep the, the cycle length the same. Otherwise you lose your, your synchron, your coordination and your synchronization. Cause that signal will be working on, let's say a 60 second cycle. Well, the signal on either side of it's also working on a 60 second cycle. And, and so you want, you'll time it. So, okay. At second zero, the first signal goes 
to green. And if it takes three seconds to get to the next signal, at second two and a half, you want that second signal to go green. So you can keep progression going. Okay. Or maybe you don't. Um, but, you know, you want to be able to provide that, that kind of coordination. So, so there's a, oh, go ahead. Well, you've, so you've described pre-timed and you've described semi-actuated. There must be then a fully actuated? Uh, yes, there is. Um, and that's, signal timings really are just set. This is the maximum time on this. This is the minimum time for this phase. Run based on traffic. And every phase, every, um, every approach and every phase will have detection. Uh, and it, it doesn't work in a coordinated system, but for an isolated signal with nothing anywhere near it in the middle of nowhere, this can work very efficiently. If you're kind of just at that level of traffic, you need a signal. Okay. Um, especially it'll help on, you know, off peak hours. So you're not waiting. Okay. And then there's actually a, uh, a fourth type of signal timing called mm -hmm. adaptive, which this is the newest type, which is really just a black box system that um, some vendor has prepared and, and um, all of them I'm aware of are proprietary that will adjust the timings and the coordination and the offsets based on live current traffic data from a central office. So, so that means you're having to coordinate the timings, I guess, then of all your signals. So if, so instead of being always on a 60 second cycle, if, if the entire system decides to adjust to a 90 second cycle, that means all your lights are going to 90 seconds. Yes. Okay. Yep. And it can change your maxes and your minimums um, all on the fly. Hmm. Um, it, it sounds great. Um, and my understanding, uh, and I haven't worked with these much, is they're okay in certain specific situations. They can work very well. Um, in very congested situations, they tend to break down and they're not really worth it in, in lower volume situations. So there's kind of this band that this seems to work really well, but it is a newer approach and it's, uh, it's only going to get better, I, I believe. Hmm. But the downside to a, a system like that is you need to have, uh, communications. Right. And, you know, there's lots of different kinds of communications and, and I'm going to, I think, uh, surprise you guys a little bit of, uh, one of the types of communications we still use is dial-up. Really? Nice. <laughs> yes. So the, the system logs into a chat room? Uh, <laughs> um, pretty close, actually. Um, there are dial-up 56K modems out there, uh, hardened, ex extremely expensive 56K modems, that can call on a phone line to the central computer to update timings, or you can call to them and update timings remotely. Um, they're definitely going away, but it's cheap. And uh, a lot of the infrastructure is already there. I'm surprised you don't have to dig them out of a landfill. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, no, they're, they're, they're definitely, though, uh, not – well, all this equipment is not cheap. But it makes sense. All the utilities are running their, their lines, usually along the roadbed to one side or the other, aren't they? So you, yep. you would expect to have a telephone line nearby. Yep. And, you know, when, when you're a big customer like a, a DOT or a city, a lot of the phone companies are very willing to sell you a, another landline telephone line. Sure. Um, 
you know, you, you don't need broadband internet. And actually, um, I wouldn't necessarily want broadband internet through an ISP. Um, because then I'm relying on their ISP servers to work. Right. And it, you know, these things have to work. Um, I would say definitely the more common now, um, approach is, is using wireless through cell phone providers mm-hmm. with 3G and 4G being native. And my personal preference is fiber optics. Um, and I will say it seems like I'm going from the, the absolute lowest bandwidth imaginable to extreme bandwidth, but it's not mm-hmm. about bandwidth. It's about signal attenuation. Um, fiber is very good at sending signals over long distances that copper just doesn't handle as well. Right. Um, and you know, the cost of fiber tends to be primarily in the right of way. The fiber itself is not that expensive. Um, so fiber is definitely a, a, um, it's one of the things that I spend a lot of time designing actually. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so you mentioned that sometimes uh, some of the systems would, uh, f- you know, phone home to get the time, you know, time of day type thing. Mm-hmm. But if you're not using one of these uh, proprietary uh, adaptive systems, what is the need for, you know, your your traffic signal to phone home? Um, well, and usually it's related to like the the semi actuated, where you need to have a consistent clock. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing is you can call in and change the timings if you need to fix them. It's, it's let's say it phone home and you phone it. Ah, home okay. phoning you. Um, and not all traffic signals are connected. A lot of them in isolated areas, they function just fine without it. And I guess I will add one other reason that to phone home is it can report problems. Mm-hmm. If it goes on flash, it can phone home and say, Hey, I've got a problem here. I'm going to flash until somebody comes out here and fixes me. <laughs> right. Um, and once again, you know, I'll, I'll say for our listeners, it, that is not an extremely common system. It ha it's out there. Um, but you know, it, in a lot of places, we also rely on the public or the police or, or somebody to call up and say, Hey, this signal here's flashing. Um, is it supposed to be doing that? And right. usually the answer is, uh, no, we didn't know about that. We'll send somebody out there. Yeah. Um, you know, low tech dispatch. Right. <laughs> right. So you mentioned somewhere in here, you mentioned the bit about trying to coordinate traffic lights. So, you know, this is something that everybody who's ever sat in, in traffic going cross town wonders about because it always seems to be set up. So, you know, for instance, you're going north south and all the lights turn green and you can go, you know, go like crazy. Uh, and if you're going the opposite direction, every single intersection, you've got to stop and wait. So what in the world is going on? Well, um, you know, that's a pretty common complaint. I've seen it on Reddit a few times lately is why do traffic engineers hate me? Why do I have to stop at every single red light? It's the law. <laughs> why do traffic engineers hate me? Well, uh, the truth of it is uh, there's a couple of different reasons that it may be intentionally that way. And it could be unintentional as well. Um, achieving two-way progression is extremely difficult and frequently impossible. You have to account for the fact that it takes traffic time to get from point A to point B. And so if you've got this platoon of cars that you're trying to serve that is going along and it needs to get the green light just before it hits that 
that next signal. It Before it hits a signal, it needs to go green. Mm-hmm. You cannot make the other direction also get the green. Because both sides, at some point you have to serve the cross street. Mm-hmm. And so at some point it has to get the red. And it's extremely uncommon in areas where these systems, you know, downtown cores, which tend to have been built before cars, before signals, before coordination, the intersections aren't spaced, so that'll work. So somebody has to, it, it ha- you have to make the, the greatest good decision as to who's going to win. Uh, usually that's, you know, AM peak, it's coming into work, PM peak, it's going away. And the other people are just unfortunately going to have to sit and wait at a red light. Um, the other possibility is sometimes you're not, you may think you're on the main line or there may be enough traffic on the side streets that giving you that continuous green light is actually worse for the system as a whole. In, in preparing signal timings in complicated areas, typically traffic engineers will simulate the system with, you know, virtual cars mm-hmm. hundreds of times figuring out what rush hour looks like and uh, time everything for the minimum total delay for the system. So does that mean they try to bunch the cars up into, like, packets? Sometimes that's uh, definitely part of it because it's easier to serve that packet than it is to serve individual discrete cars. Hmm. Uh, it's called platooning. I like this episode. We seem to be using our catchphrase quite a bit. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> Good job, there Adam. Is sponsors a, will be proud. There is a lot of it depends. Uh, I wonder if we can get them as a sponsor. <laughs> Not really an engineering company, though. Oh, I don't know. Absorbency. I mean, material science. Uh, the upcoming retirees that listen to our podcast. Have we got a coupon for you? <laughs> um, right. So, so, oh, go ahead. Uh, so you mentioned the spacing, and I was a little confused there. So <clears throat> I, I can see where if you don't have enough spacing between lights, then you've got to chop everything up, and th- that becomes difficult. So is there an optimal spacing? If if or is there? D- just explain the spacing issue, I guess. Once again, it. it it depends. It's really, <laughs> yes, it really depends. Um, so if your platoon of cars is moving at 30 miles an hour or uh, what is that, 50 kilometers an hour mm-hmm. approximately? Give or take. If you've got a, a group of vehicles moving at 30 miles an hour, it's going to take them a – and I got it's hard to do this with numbers. They're, they're moving along. It's going to take them a certain amount of time to cover that city block to the next signal, or there sure. are so many city blocks to the next signal. And when it when it varies is really the problem, where you know it, it is ah uh, okay. So so you have uneven spacing between the streets, and therefore you can't releasing a certain timing puts a, a the wrong number of cars on a certain block because that block can't handle that many cars. Uh, that can be part of it, or. Just the, the fact that, you know, as you're progressing in one direction, you know, the one side gets to the signal before the other one does. And so one of them is going to have to stop. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is, it, it's. But, but you can't, you can't optimize for a single intersection. You've got to intersect, you've got to optimize for stretches of road. So you've got to trade off what you're doing, you know, again, east, west versus north, south. Yep. Somebody may have to sit. 
for the benefit of everybody else. And, and it may cost them an extra 15 seconds, but at the whole, we're saving tens of hours. Right. Right. And, and so in the traffic engineering world, when people analyze this, are, uh, are people using uh, calculus equations the way we would in fluid flow? Or is it mostly uh, statistical analysis? Uh, statistical analysis and micro simulation. Um, there are some old, usually it's pen and paper techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say pen and paper, I mean like drawing it on a piece of paper, um, drawing a, a chart with the the distance on one axis and time on the other, and mm-hmm. saying here's where my intersections are, and the slope of your line is your your platoon speed. Mm-hmm. And you can see how platoons will work, but that really only works with mainline progression. Generally, it's you plug it into a computer, the computer will simulate it multiple times and figure out what the delay was. Hmm. Uh, okay. And then you, you look at that and you tweak it and you have the computer, you know, run through a dozen rush hours again and, and see what the delay was. Interesting. Um, yeah. Do, do you find like the optimum? times for signals and all that stuff is it uh is it like a fairly sharp peak of optimal times or is it kind of broad where if you're like oh if this light is 60 seconds we're good if it's 70 or seconds we're okay or 65 or does it fall off pretty fast um well the the optimum time you will always have more capacity when you have a longer cycle uh, okay. because every time you have a red light every time it, the light changes to red you have to go through a yellow time that you lose a portion of that. You go through an all red time, uh, which is usually a couple of seconds just for, you know, those people that are going to run the red light. So you're not running them into a, uh, into somebody. And then a couple of seconds for people to, Oh, the light turned green. Now I have to go. And then for them to accelerate up to speed. So having a shorter cycle length means you lose more time, but. If you've got a too long of a cycle length, you've got people sitting on necessarily. Mm-hmm. So the optimum cycle length depends on the volume. Gotcha. Because, you know, you know, short cycle lengths, you lose time, you lose efficiency. But if you don't need that extra capacity, you, you, you don't want to take it mm-hmm. because it's creating delay. Yeah. Like isolating it down to like, say, rush hour, you know, going into the city, does the the, the timing vary, like, you know, is it, if you're off by a few seconds, does it wreck everything? Or as long as the whole street itself is pretty consistent with a timing? You know, uh, if your system is coordinated properly, um, you know, and a few seconds really isn't generally going to matter. Um, mm-hmm. there, there's more variability day-to-day in traffic than a few seconds will account for. That's true. But if you've, if you've got a signal that really should be running at 60 seconds, which is a pretty good, pretty long cycle length, really. Yeah. All those people saying they sit at a signal for 15 minutes, it, it's closer to 60 to 90 seconds. 90 seconds is a pretty long se- cycle. Um, but if you've got it at, if it should be 60 and you've got it at 30, that's going to cause some problems. Interesting. So, yeah, it's pretty optimal or pretty forgiving, you know, in terms of a second or two. You don't have to be that precise. Yeah, and, and usually you'll you'll round it to uh, something a little easier to deal with for the person who has to plug it into the the controller. Even seconds, even fives of seconds. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. Um, 
And you'll have to make sure that, you know, if, if you're coordinating a corridor, you need to make it the same throughout the corridor. Yeah. Otherwise, you're, you're going to get shifted after a couple of cycles. So second one in one at one signal is second 13 at a different signal. And it, they'll lose their coordination. Well, they're out of coordination. Um, so it, it, you have to balance it and it's, you know, easiest, easiest to pick uh, an even you know, five seconds or something. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So we've, we've learned that, uh, the, the life of the traffic engineer is uh, complicated and varied, and traffic engineers do not hate everybody. No, no. Uh, <laughs> as I said earlier, the traffic engineer frequently acts as the, the driver's advocate, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but you need to act as the advocate of everybody. And unfortunately, not everybody can always win. Hmm. That doesn't seem fair. Well, as long as I can win, I don't care. <laughs> uh, right now so so adam uh, tell us a little more about this podcast that you're involved with well I, i'm involved in a podcast called the engineering commons uh huh. which is uh that's, airing. The, that's that's the name of this podcast oh it is i think so prepare for a legal battle man oh man <laughs> <laughs> Well, Adam, I, I appreciate your willingness to uh, to take off your co-host hat and put on your guest hat and uh, join us and tell us a little bit about traffic engineering. Not a problem. So uh, we've learned a little bit about traffic engineering, and uh, I'll wish our listeners a, a good couple of weeks until we get together again on the next episode of The Engineering Commons. Have a good evening, guys. All right. Take it easy. Good night. Good night. Bye. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.